Jesus, we're thankful for who you are. Uh, We're thankful for the opportunity to get into your word right now. And uh, we pray that you would be magnified. We make much of you, Jesus. Jesus, we realize that you're greater than. You're greater than any leader, any high priest. Lord, you've given us the new covenant. We never want to get tired of hearing of you and growing in the knowledge of you. So would you really bless this Bible study? You're our shepherd. You tell us that you're a good shepherd. And right now, would you, would you shepherd us? Would you lead us to still pastures? I, I pray for those tonight that need those still pastures. Jesus, would you bring them to that place? Those green pastures and still waters. There it is. Lord, that you would walk with us through the valley of the shadow of death. Jesus, would you be so kind to prepare a table before us? Just allow us to to come in and fellowship with you and enjoy your goodness. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Author, definition, maker of anything, creator or originator. What are some things that we author? Some things that we design? Maybe you would author a book, write out a a book or a, a blog post. Art, art is authored. So that's something that you create. Music, someone's able to be able to write a song and put music together. We author buildings, we put buildings together. My father-in-law, he's an architect, and a few months ago he recommended a show to us on Netflix called Grand Design. So we watched it, and what it is is it's over in England, people going to these old houses and remodeling uh, these houses or doing a, a new build uh, from uh, some location. But it wasn't just your normal remodel, of course, to live up to the name. It was the grand design, right? And I got to tell you, I loved it. You know, I was, I was vegging out on, these, uh, on this series and watching the creativity and watching people uh, labor and labor to put stuff together. And, and there was times where I, I was stressed watching this program, right? I was like, this is not going to come together. They're, they're not going to come in with this nice finished product. And they let you in on the budget. You know, they, they ask people at the beginning of the, of the project, how much are you planning on spending? How much money do you have? And they would give their dollar amount. And every time it was more than that, right? So at some point in the process, they're trying to find more money or borrow more money, asking family for money. And then every time at the end of the show, usually it was like an 18-month process for the individual, they've got this beautiful house. And it was amazing to see what was created. And and creativity, it inspires us. When something gets authored, it, it inspires us. So why do we author things? Why do we desire to create things? Why do we appreciate things that are created? Because we're made in God's image. And God is the creator. Of what God has created, what is the greatest? What is the greatest thing that God has created? Salvation. It's salvation. And that's what we look at in Hebrews chapter 5, that he is the author of salvation. We think of God creating the universe and the stars and the sun. All of that is temporary. We know that this earth has a lifespan. It will perish. As great as God's design is of humanity and each individual that he's created, Adam and Eve being being the first, if there was no salvation, we wouldn't be eternal, would we? We wouldn't be eternally with God. We'd be in eternal separation from God. So we get to study, we get to look at the wonder of God authoring salvation through Jesus Christ. 
Hebrews gives us the theme that Jesus is greater than. The temptation of this believers, they were Jewish believers, was to go back under the law to start looking to a system of works to have right standing with God or grow in a relationship with God. What was happening as in the midst of that is they began to diminish Jesus. They failed to see how wonderful Jesus was. And if we're not careful, unfortunately, almost the longer we walk with Christ, the less we appreciate Jesus. It's ironic, isn't it? People start to talk about Jesus and we're like, oh, I heard that. I've, I've got that. I understand that. Why don't you give me something a little more practical or give me something that, that I can really put my hands on and apply myself to. And so the author of Hebrews, ultimately the Holy Spirit, is saying, I want to bring you back to an appreciation of Jesus. And one of the greatest ways to learn is through contrast. And we've talked about this through our study of Hebrews. How do you know that something is excellent? By having something that's average. How do you know that something's average? By having something that's really bad. Okay? And so throughout this section of Hebrews, God is saying, look, here's Jesus compared to the high priest. Now, the the high priest is good, but Jesus is greater. Here's Jesus compared to the old covenant. This is the new covenant, and it's far greater. So we look at the author of salvation tonight in three areas. Is that he's greater than the high priest in the order of Melchizedek, and then the author of salvation is desiring maturity in our lives. So as we look at this wonderful aspect of Christ, the last part of this chapter is we're challenged to grow, we're challenged to mature, we're challenged not to be at the place where we just have milk from the Lord, milk from the Word, but really are able to digest some filet mignon in the Word of God, to really be able to get into the meat of Scripture. For every high priest, verse 1, taken from among men is appointed for men in the things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifice for sin. So every high priest, speaking of the priest, in the order of priests there would be the high priest who was given the authority. He was, he was taken from men. He, he was taken out of the multitude of men for the purpose of men, to, to serve men in the area of things pertaining to God, to declare to them who God is, and then specifically to offer gifts, prayers, and sacrifices for sin. The very nature of the need for high priest was because of sinful man. Man sins, and so there has to be a sacrifice for sin. The job of the high priest was to take the animals and sacrifice the animals and make the sacrifice for sin. And each of those sacrifices pointed to the final sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And this is going to point to Jesus. This looking at the high priest is going to point how Jesus is greater than the high priest. In verse 2, speaking of the high priest... He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. So the high priest could understand people's sin because he too was a sinner. He could understand people's weakness because he had the very same weakness. Now Jesus sympathizes with our weakness, but he never sinned. And that's what makes Jesus greater than the high priest. Is the high priest, yeah, he can sympathize from a place of, I'm a sinner too. 
But Jesus can have compassion, and that's what one of the things of the book of Hebrews really points out, is he's our faithful and merciful high priest because he was tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. But what makes Christ even greater is he never sinned. So he has compassion on us, but not from a place of sinning. Look in verse 3. Because of this, he is required, as for the people, so also for himself, to offer sacrifice for sin. So the author of salvation, number one, is greater than the high, than the high priest. In what way? Because the high priest had to sacrifice for his own sin. Jesus never had to sacrifice for his own sin. And in fact, he became the sacrifice. So he was sacrificing for our sin, and then he himself became the lamb. And so this makes him far greater than any high priest. Gang, let's process for this a second together. Let's talk about this. The tendency for this group of individuals, this group of believers, was to be attracted to the tradition, to be attracted to what they knew, the law and the high priest. As wonderful as it is for us to talk about Jesus and how wonderful Jesus is, there's something where we want to be gravitated to a person that we can see, an individual that we can see. So that their temptation is to want to go back to the temple, go back to the high priest. We, we can see the high priest. Now imagine a little bit, like we can't fully picture this because we don't live in the day when the temple is built and the sacrificial system is. But the high priest must have been an impressive dude. You know what I'm saying? Like you almost picture it like the Pope type of status, Right? There's a, there's a lot of like power and influence and it's like, whoa, the, there's the, the high priest. And the tendency is to, to go back to something that we can see. But Jesus is greater than the high priest because he's perfect. And everyone else, the high priest included, the, the Pope included, I know that that's going to get me in trouble. Every, everyone who has ever been born is a sinner. And needs a sacrifice for their sin, except for Jesus. Jesus is the God-man. Where he's God and he's man, he's perfect, and he's the perfect sacrifice for our sin. Now, I know that most of us know this, but be reminded, don't start looking to an individual the way we should be looking to Jesus. It might be a mentor, someone that is invested in your life, and you start to give them high priest type status in your mind. We start to think that people have the answers, that pastors have the answers, that the person singing the worship song has the answers, the the person that wrote the blog has the answers. And God may be using people, but we're sinners. I'm a sinner. Every person that's ever written a, a sermon other than Jesus Christ is extremely flawed and is a sinner. Every person that's written a worship song, as beautiful as it is, is a sinner, right? You know, every person that's got up and led a leadership conference and said, hey, these, this pointed you to Christ, they're, they're a sinner. So don't mix that up. You know, don't, don't start to put somebody on a pedestal and begin to serve them or think, oh, they've got the answers or they're going to be able to unpack things for me. Jesus is the answer, Amen. And he's greater than the high priest because he never sinned. He never had to make sacrifice for sin. And in fact, he was the perfect sacrifice. And that's what the author of Hebrews 
is teaching us. And I want to encourage you, as you have the opportunity to counsel, encourage, mentor others, is point them to Jesus. Point them to Jesus. Don't point them to yourself. You know, I hope you're not following the pastoral team at RMC because we're going to get you in a lot of trouble. Because we're, we're sinners and we're flawed and we fall short. I hope that you're following Jesus Christ. You know, I, I hope that that is the anchor of your soul. And there, there's something tempting when you start pouring into somebody else's life to give yourself too much credit and just remind them, hey, don't look to me. Look to Jesus. I may or may not be here, but Jesus is always going to be here. You know, don't let people settle for a trite answer where they think, oh, yeah, this is really going to fix my problems. Say, so, you know, you really need to go to Christ. You need to really be asking Jesus. You know, really, ultimately, only Jesus can change your heart in this. You need to cry out to him. And Jesus is the answer because Jesus is greater than the high priest and you can fill everything else in the blank. Jesus is way greater than the mentor, way greater than the pastor, way greater than the Christian author, way greater than the worship leader, way greater, you know, tremendously greater. Amen? And verse 4, And no one takes this honor to himself, but who is called by God, just as Aaron was. You couldn't appoint yourself to be a priest in the Old Testament. In Numbers 16 and 17, God was very specific that the Levites were to take care of the physical aspects of the tabernacle, then moving into the temple. Aaron and his sons, Moses' brother, they were specifically to be the high priest. So you had to be of that family. You had to be of the tribe of Levi or descendant of Aaron to be a priest. And so that was very clear. You had to be called by God. You had to be appointed by God. And this is leading us back to Christ as well. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Meditate on that for a moment. Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest. Jesus always glorified who? The Father. When he did good works, they glorified the Father. So if Christ didn't glorify himself how much more so should we not glorify ourselves? Jesus was appointed by the Father. So the priests were appointed by God, and Jesus was appointed by the Father, quoting Psalms 110, saying, You are my son, today I have begotten you. I have chosen you. We think of the words of the Father spoken about Jesus audibly, and he says, This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. So as we look at the greatness of Christ, he's greater than the high priest because he's the son. He's the one that's been appointed by the father to be the priest, to be the sacrifice for our sin. Verse 6 teaches us that Jesus is of the order of Melchizedek, and we'll talk about that and explain that. And as he also says in other places, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Again, quoting out of Psalms 110, that Jesus is the priest forever of the order of Melchizedek. To unlock this a little bit, first we have to remember the original readers are Jews. So they're thinking through this about Jesus and the greatness of Jesus. And in order for Jesus to be king from the Old Testament, he has to be from the line of what? 
David. He's got to be from the line of David. For him to be priest, and specifically high priest, he's got to be the descendant of Aaron. We know that Jesus is the descendant of David, and he's king, but he also claims to be priest, and the ultimate priest, the priest forever. So how could that be? It's through the order of Melchizedek. It's a priesthood that's even greater than the line of Aaron. So let's dig into what this Melchizedek guy is all about. Notice that it's a priesthood forever. That's what's quoted out of Psalms 10. So not like the priesthood of Aaron that's temporary. The priesthood of Melchizedek lasts forever. So turn with me back to Genesis 14. Genesis is the first book in the Bible, Genesis 14. And let's look at Melchizedek stepping on to the pages of the Old Testament. To give you a little bit of background here, the context is Abram, Abraham, and his nephew Lot. They were blessed. They had a lot of cattle. They couldn't both live in the same proximity. So Abraham says, why don't you choose? You know, where do you want to live? Lot chooses Sodom because it was pleasant. It was prosperous. His flocks could could do there, do well there. A conglomeration of kings, a group of kings in verse 1 of chapter 14 come together to attack uh, this region where Lot is hanging out. Lot is taken captive. And we'll pick up the story in verse 13 of chapter 14. Then one who escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the terabith trees of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol, brother of Abner, and they were allies with Abram. So they come out to Abram to tell him this, this news about the captivity that had taken place of Lot. So Abram gets this, this word that his nephew is taken captive. In verse 14, now when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, brother is another name for for nephew, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his house and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Now Abram, who would become Abraham, is a man's man right here, okay? We've got kings, multiple kings coming together to take all of these people captive, Lot included, Abram gets word of it. He doesn't think twice. He's like, me and my 13, 318 homeboys, we're going to go out and take care of this, right? They're severely outnumbered. 318 against multiple kings and all of their warriors. But notice, these guys have all been born in his house, and he trained these guys to fight. He's like, if we need to, we're going to take care of business. We're going to go after this. So these guys, they were men of faith, and they were warriors, we're going to go out and we're going to, we're going to save, save Lot. We're going to rescue him. And, and it's amazing. And they, they do. They have a great victory. And he went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them at night. These guys were the first Navy SEALs, right? They, like divided them all up. And he's like, we're, we're going in at night and we're going to take care of this. And he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Horba, which is north of Damascus, modern day Syria. So he brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods as well as the women and the people. He was able to rescue Lot and his family. 
And the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shiva, that is, the king's valley, because the king of Sodom was one who was rescued as well because of this. After his return from the defeat of Shadomir and the kings who were with him, and now we find Melchizedek in the midst of this scene. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of the Most High. So when we think of the order of Melchizedek, this is where this is rooted in Genesis 14. And if you were a Hebrew, you would study the Old Testament, you would be familiar with this. Melchizedek means righteousness. He was the king of righteousness. Salem is Jerusalem, or peace. The, the location was Jerusalem. So you have the king of righteousness from Jerusalem. What does he bring out to Abram? He brings out bread and wine. How does that point to Jesus Christ in the new covenant? What does he bring out? Bread and wine. He welcomes us into relationship through his broken body and his shed blood, symbolized in the new covenant in communion. And here Melchizedek speaks over Abram, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, professor of heaven and earth, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he, being Abram, gave him a tithe. In verse 18, we find this amazing combination that we don't see in Israel is that Melchizedek is king and priest. When Israel would become a nation, God was very clear to say, the same man will not hold position of being king and priest. If the kings tried to step over into that realm of being priests, they were severely judged by God. Jesus is the only one who was king and priest, wasn't he? as far as the kings of Israel go. So that's when Hebrews says that Jesus is of the order of Melchizedek, that he is both king and priest, and he is the priest forever. We're going to go all theological for just a second. Is that okay? Just, just for fun? Because I know some of you are wondering it. There is two schools of thought here. One is that Jesus is in the order of Melchizedek, meaning that he's in the type or... He, Melchizedek was foreshadowing Jesus Christ. And then there's others that believe that Melchizedek is actually Jesus stepping onto the pages of the Old Testament, which is referred to a Christophany, where, where Christ chooses to reveal himself in the pages of the Old Testament. We see that in a few places in the Old Testament. Either way, it's really awesome. Either way, it's really awesome. You know, if this is Jesus coming you know, as the king of Melchizedek, and it's literally Christ stepping onto the Old, Old Testament, or if God chose to raise up this king, this king of Salem, king of Melchizedek, to powerfully point to Jesus Christ, it gives us a great understanding, a deep understanding of Jesus, that he's both king and priest, and he's the priest forever. Now, I don't want us to get lost in the application of this, God has set up this message from the very beginning. We're all the way back in Genesis, throughout the Old Testament, and sinful man needed a priest. Sinful man needed someone to make sacrifice for their sin. 
And Jesus is our high priest. He sees our sin. And he made sacrifice for sin. And he is the sacrifice. That's how much God, God loves us. We can't save ourselves. We need a high priest. We need a sacrifice for our sin. Well, let's go back to Hebrews and look at verse 7. Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplication with vehement cries and tears to whom was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. So God, as he's authoring these words and wanting us to have appreciation of Jesus as our high priest, highlights Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. It gives us an understanding of Christ operating as that priest on our behalf in the days of his flesh, the, the days when he was in human flesh. He offered up prayers and supplication. And then those vehement cries and tears, he's crying out to the Father who could save him from death. Speaking of the suffering of Christ. And this really gets into the detail of Jesus authoring salvation. As the, the high priest really doing the grand design of, of salvation. It says that he was heard because of his godly fear. Of his reverence for the Father. Picture Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Luke tells us, as Jesus prayed there, that he began to sweat blood, which is a medical condition when someone's under great agony. And Christ's heart was broken. This was the degree that he was sacrificing for us. He knew what it was going to cost him upon the cross. He knew what the cup of suffering was going to be. He understood that fellowship with the Father was going to be broken and he was going to be the propitiation for, for our sins. And he's crying out to, to the Father. In verse 8, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. So Christ, in his humanity, learned obedience. He had to choose obedience. And the way that he learned obedience was through suffering. David Guzik, in his commentary, puts it this way, and I think it brings some clarity. Jesus didn't pass from disobedience to obedience. That's what we do. We go from disobedience, hopefully, to obedience. He learned obedience by actually obeying. Jesus didn't learn how to obey. He learned what was involved in obedience. He never disobeyed. He was never sinful. He wasn't born with a sinful nature like we are. But yet he chose obedience. So when Christ asks us to obey, he understands the choice of the will. And he understands that it involves suffering and it involves difficulty. And the suffering was part of the learning process of obedience. If you were here this weekend, we talked about difficulty and we talked about suffering. God teaches us so many things in suffering. One of the things that he teaches us is obedience. A lot of times in suffering, our emotions get really squirrely, don't we? We don't feel like obeying. And we start feeling sideways and temptation goes out the roof. And it's in those moments that we learn to say, I can't trust my feelings. Anybody been there? I can't trust my emotions. I can't trust what my mind is telling me right now. I have to trust the word of God. I, I've got to choose obedience in, in the midst of that. So this is comforting that Christ isn't asking us to do something that he hasn't already done, that we can ask him for help. Jesus, help me learn obedience. 
You know, it, it, if obedience was something that you learned through suffering, how much more so for me as well? I'm comforted that obedience has to be learned because my experience is it hasn't come naturally, you know. You, you tell me, hey, don't, don't cross the line. Like, hey, 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 what you going to do about it, right? So, so obedience is something that has to be learned. It, it's something that God, God teaches us. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey. Jesus was never not God. This is speaking of his suffering that made him Christ. He was perfectly suited and prepared to be the author of salvation. It was through suffering that he became the author of salvation. We go back to this Netflix show, Grand Design, and you see the ones that succeeded and ones that failed. A lot of times they, they had a this architect plan things out and they had a plan from, from, from the beginning. And when we look at what caused salvation to be authored, it was suffering. It was the crucifixion. It was him dying upon the cross, his death and resurrection. So our salvation is pinned in the blood of Jesus. That's how it was authored. That's how it was brought about. And we see this in this greatness about Jesus, and we understand this greatness about him is that he then authored salvation, and he brought it into existence and brought it into our lives. What a beautiful thing that only he could pin, that he could author, that he could bring into existence. So, I've got all messed up on my points, so I'm just going to back up a little bit. So point number two was the author of salvation is of the order of Melchizedek. Point number one, we don't care about anymore. We don't even remember it. What was point, what was point number one? That he's greater than the high priest. So point number two is that he's in the order of Melchizedek. And in the order of Melchizedek, he's authored salvation. So verse 10 called by God as the high priest. The father has called him high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Of whom we have much to say. Oh, don't we have so much to say about Jesus and his goodness, what he means in our lives? We have much to say and hard to explain. This whole concept of Jesus being of the order of Melchizedek is hard to explain. Since you have become dull of hearing. Why is it hard to explain? Because they got tired of hearing. They got dull of hearing. I like the way that scripture puts that, is where your hearing's no longer sharp. You're no longer paying attention. It just gets dull. It gets ho-hum. It gets wah-wah-wah-wah-wah-wah. So once we start hearing about Jesus, we just begin to, to tune out about Christ, and so that they miss out upon the wonders of who Jesus is. Why is it that we could become dull of hearing? What is it? It's a lack of interest. You know, we, we tend to listen to things that we're interested in. It's a lack of faith. It's, it's a lack of approaching Christ and, and his word and the knowledge of him with faith that he's going to show himself to us, that he's going to reveal himself to us. The book of Hebrews addresses hearing a lot, doesn't it? Remember earlier, it said, Give more earnest heed to the things that you've heard, lest you drift away. That was chapter 2, verse 1. 
And then in chapter 3 and 4, we saw a generation in the wilderness who didn't enter the, the promised land because their hearing wasn't mixed with faith wasn't mixed with that expectation of who God is and that God was going to do, do great things. Could hearing be fixed? Could spiritual hearing be fixed? Absolutely. I think that that's what the author of Hebrews is really attempting to do, is to say, I want you to start listening again. How long has it been since you have heard from the Lord? Learned more about Him? Experienced His correction or His encouragement or had a verse stand out to you. I believe that God is speaking. He, he's into communication. The question is, am I listening? And have I got dull of hearing? You know, one of the things I really enjoy about being a pastor is getting to watch young couples. I get a kick out of it, you know? When they first meet and they're dating... And a lot of times, you can kind of tell where things are headed pretty early, pretty early on. Like, this, this one's got a 50-50 chance, you know, like, they, they may get married. And other times you're like, this is like 80-20. I really think that they're definitely going to get married. Ultimately, the Lord doesn't know. He's the only one that knows. But this is like 80-20 here. And then there's other times you're like, there is no chance that these two are getting married, you know? And if they do, the Lord bless them, you know, right? Like, it's going to be going to be a tough road. And these are things that, that you're watching. But all couples, when they first meet, there's a lot of interest, and they are not dull of hearing, right? They're locked in on each other. They're making eye contact. Like, really, you like that? No way. I like that, too. That's my favorite color, too. Like, you like green? I like green. I've always... It must be, this must be God's will for us to get married, right? <laughs> and then another thing that's fun is to watch couples that have been married for a while, married for a long time. And what happens to us after we've been married for a long time, if we're not careful? We're dull of hearing. Huh? What'd you say? Huh? What? Were you talking to me? You know? Now, and just whoosh, the interest starts to, to go away. You know, if, if we're not careful, maybe not asking those questions of how is your day? How are you doing today? How, how are things going? Do you think that could possibly happen in our relationship with the Lord? Remember when you first met the Lord and God first revealed grace to you? It's like, God, I'm listening. God, I'm here. I've got, I've got your word. Can't wait for Wednesday night study. Can't wait to do my devotions. I know you're going to speak. And when you speak, I'm going to respond. Remember when we read the Bible and we actually planned to do something about it? <laughs> you know, you're like, wow, God, God said to do this. So I need to step out in faith and I need to do this. And, and our hearing was there. Our heart was there. Our interest was there. And then over time, if we're not careful, it's like ho-hum, ho-hum. I, I've heard this. I've taught this. I've shared this. I've, I've got this. And we drift from Jesus and we lose sight of Jesus. So, so may God wake up our hearing. May we give attention and interest in our hearing with the Lord and with our spouses if you're married. So, verse 12. For though, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracle of God. We don't know for sure who the human author is here. 
But this is where the letter gets really serious. Imagine you're reading through Hebrews and greatness of Jesus, greater than the angels, greater than the high priest, encouragement and exhortation, some strong challenges already. But now you get to verse 12, and this is what I call a stick verse because it hurts a little bit, kind of beats you up a little bit. And he's saying to these group of believers, by this time, you ought to be teaching. You, gotta be, you should be teaching others. But instead of teaching, you need someone to come again and give you the very basic principles of the oracles of God of who he is. So because of the dole of hearing, there wasn't maturity. There wasn't growth that was taking place in our lives. So we understand something very important from Scripture here is that God does desire for all of us to be teachers. And teaching doesn't just happen in a setting like this. And this may surprise you, but this is not the best format of teaching. I enjoy it. I hope you enjoy it. I hope growth comes from it. But you know the best type of teaching is one-on-one. The best type of teaching is, is having a conversation with someone where you get to share your heart and go back and forth. Oftentimes in Scripture, it's called discipleship. God wants us to be involved in the lives of others where we get to share the things that God has revealed to us. No matter where you are in your journey with the Lord, no matter if you're weeks or years, God has taught you things that you're able to share with other believers. Paul wrote to Timothy and he said, the things that I have shared with you, the things that you've received from me in the presence of many witnesses, I want you to teach to faithful men. Timothy, I want you to pass on what you're learning. And this is where hearing becomes very different. Let's just say that you knew tomorrow you're going to have to teach Hebrews chapter 5. What kind of notes would you take, right? When I know that I have to teach, it causes me to study in a greater way. So teaching is one of the best ways to grow. Start sharing. Say you are doing your devotions and you're reading God's word. Read it first from the perspective of God, would you teach me? And then who would you have me share this with? So if God shows you a verse that really blesses you, encourages you, convicts you, look to pass it on to somebody, you know? You can send it out in a text. You can, you can put it on a post. You, you can talk with somebody. You can say, you know what, can I just share this with you? God really spoke to me in, in this way. Share it with your family. If you're single, share it with your, your friends, with your roommates, but God wants you teaching. But yet they weren't at the place that they could do that. They needed to go back and, and hear the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. Saying, so God wants to give you meat, but you can only drink milk. We think of the maturity of a, of a child. We think of the maturity of a child. And it's wonderful when they start drinking milk. When they're infants, they're just born, they're hours old, and they're able to, to nurse. And it's like, wow, this is great. This is so important. They're going to have to drink milk for their development. What if you have a kid that's only, that's five years old and can still only drink milk? What if you have a 15-year-old that can only drink milk? It's like, it's like, dude, it's time. You know, you, 
There's, there's really great things out there like hamburgers and, and chicken wings and steak and hamburgers and chicken wings and steak. You know, like, you just, you, you need to get on past the milk and you need to go into these, these deeper things. And see, God is more than delighted to give us milk when we're new believers. But then there's a point where he says, you know what? You should be maturing and you should be able to handle the word of God. And you should be able to study the word of God and get out of the things of the word of God. So we discern what maturity is from from the text in verse 13. And it's unskilled in the word of righteousness. So we're in that place where we're having milk if we're unskilled in the word of righteousness. Now, if you're new in the Lord, we're so excited for you. We're so excited that you've come to know Christ as your Savior. Don't think that you've got to have it all figured out. Don't think that you should be skilled in in the Word of God. You need to start with milk and not be ashamed of that. Amen? So so don't let it beat you up if you are new, new in the Lord. What does it mean here to be skilled in the words of righteousness? It's to know how to use the Word of God. It's not just head knowledge of how well do I academically know the Word of God, but getting in the Word of God and knowing how to use it, knowing how to apply it. So, okay, this is what God says about marriage, so I'm going to seek to apply it through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what the Word of God says about temptation, so I'm going to apply it through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what the Word of God says about, and you begin to use it in your life. That, that's maturity from, from God's perspective. If we're reading the Word of God and we're not using it, then we're not maturing. So a mark of maturity is learning how to use the Word of God. Another mark of maturity, verse 14, but solid food belongs to those who are full of age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. So solid food, meat, is for those that are mature, that have grown, And the reason that they're mature is so that they can exercise their senses to discern between what is good and evil. That's spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity is using God's word in our life, being able to discern between good and evil. Uh, This is a good conversation. This is a conversation I need to press into. Uh, This is not a good conversation. This is a conversation I need to walk away from. Uh, There's the woman of folly walking down the hall right there. I need to run for my life. There is the man of folly. He's right from the pit of hell. I need to run for my life. You know, it's discerning between good and evil. Oh, this is something I need to be watching. This is something I need to be listening to. This is, oh, this is something I should, I should shut off. So this third thing that we see about Jesus, the author of salvation, and it's our final point, is that he's desiring maturity in our lives. He's desiring for us to grow. And what a beautiful perspective that this has brought to us. Because we see a wonderful Savior who's greater than the high priest. A wonderful Savior who's of the order of Melchizedek, who's authored salvation. And he very lovingly and very tenderly says, come on, grow. Come on, grow. Get in the Word of God. Use the Word of God. Get in the Word of God and allow the Word of God to discern between what is good and what is evil. I want to just encourage you, if you have been reading the word for a bit of time, listening to the word of God being taught, 
it's time for you to start teaching. One of the joys that comes is going over to Uganda and sitting down with pastors and leaders and seeing their knowledge of the Word of God. They have so much hunger and so much zeal, but they have very little knowledge. And you start to understand how much Bible knowledge we have by being a Christian in the United States of America. Like, by living here and reading the Word of God and hearing teaching, you have been given a lot of the Word of God, probably more than you realize. Way, way more than we, we realize. But what does the enemy tell us? Oh, you don't know that much. You know, you haven't been to seminary. You don't know the Greek. What if someone challenges you? You, you can't share with someone else. Look, you have your problems. You, you keep sinning. You keep, keep messing up. You can't encourage somebody with, with the word of God. And we go, wait a second. I got a high priest who saved me. And I might not know all the word of God, but I know some of the word of God, and I can begin to, to pass it on to others. And please don't think of ministry and teaching just in this type of setting. It's, it's right where you're at. It's, it's who's in your life and to be able to share with them and teach with them and encourage them. So what have we seen tonight in our text? The author of salvation is greater than the high priest, is of the order of Melchizedek, and is desiring maturity in our lives. Here's three application questions and we're done. Am I looking to others in ways I should be looking to Christ? That's, that's a tough question. Am I looking to others the way I should be looking to Christ? Could be your spouse. Could be a mentor, a leader, a pastor. Allow Christ to be the greater than the high priest. Am I spiritually hard of hearing? What? Am I spiritually hard of hearing? Do I, am I dull of hearing? Is there a lack of interest and a lack of faith? And then am I maturing in Christ? Am I growing or maturing in Christ? Now, that can be a hard thing to try to evaluate in our own lives because condemnation really gets in. You go, man, I don't, I don't see any growth in my life. I don't feel like I'm maturing at all. So boil it down to the word. What does the word say? Are you learning how to use the word of God in a greater way in your life? If the answer is yes, you're maturing. Are you starting to be able to discern between what is good and evil in a greater way? then you're maturing. You're, you're growing in your relationship with God. You're like, man, I wasn't even convicted of that five months ago. I wasn't even convicted of that five years ago, but I've really come to understand the fruit of this and the fruit of that. Then, then, then you're maturing. And look for then that opportunity to teach and, and share others. Let's stand and pray together and rejoice in Christ uh, together. Jesus, we thank you for who you are. Forgive us for having lack of interest or thinking that we've got you figured out. And Lord, we, we do want to hear the challenge in this text where some of you need to be teaching, but yet you need milk. And, and God, would you be gracious to us and cause us to grow and renew our hunger? Would you dispel that lie that We've got to be perfect or have it all figured out to begin to share with others. We think of this truth of multiplication of disciples being made. And we know that that's you overflowing our lives so that we can pour into others. So would you give us opportunities to share what you're teaching us? Would you keep us from the condemnation of the enemy and bless this time of communion? 
In Jesus' name, amen.